So we come now to the final of our seven letters that we're looking at in the beginning of the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible. And we're looking today at a, a letter to a church in a city called Laodicea. And as we do so, we've got this title of Dear Deluded of Laodicea. As we look at this letter, I want us to ask ourselves six questions. And the first question is, who is it who is writing to the church? The first couple of verses go like this, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Who is it who's writing to the church at Laodicea? I wonder if you remember getting school reports. Maybe you still get school reports. Maybe you're in the business of writing school reports. I have to say, I don't ever remember the end-of-term school report as being a particularly happy affair. My parents, uh, my reports rarely said anything good about me, and my parents used to read through them with uh, sighs of exasperated resignation. I do remember learning one important thing about school reports, though, and this is that, that a few teachers just didn't like me, and I think they enjoyed giving me a bad report. And there was nothing I could do about it, and in fact, I very quickly learned that uh, the worst thing I could try and do was to do well in their subject, because that offended their opinion of me as a poor student. Fortunately, that was a minority of my teachers. Most of my teachers... Uh, had a genuine vocational calling to their profession, and if they wrote me a bad report, it was because they cared about me, and they wanted to see me achieve the very best that I could. In each of the seven letters that we've looked at, we've seen that Jesus introduces himself to the church he's writing to differently, and as he does so, he introduces them to some character, uh, some, uh, some uh, aspect of his character that the church needs to know about and understand. So, for instance, to the church at Smyrna, which was being uh, mercilessly persecuted, he introduces himself as the first and the last, the one who died and rose again. To Philadelphia, which we looked at last week, uh, and was being persecuted by the local Jewish population. He says, I am the one who uh, is steadfast and true, holy and true, and who holds the keys of David, and so on and so forth. To the church here in Laodicea, Jesus introduces himself as the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. All of which speaks to us uh, of Jesus as one who both established and witnesses to the truth about God. And indeed, as we look through this letter to the church at Laodicea, we could say the word that challenges them more than anything else is that word truth. You all have noticed that our title for this last in our series is Dear Deluded. And that's exactly what the church was. It wasn't that they were in the business of 
telling lies or spreading lies. It wasn't that they had flawed theology. I'm sure if any of the other characters that had appeared in the previous six letters had appeared in the church, maybe the Nicolaitans or that woman Jezebel or the synagogue of Satan, if they had turned up in the church at Laodicea, the Laodiceans would have sniffed them out and sent them packing. It wasn't that the church in Laodicea was propagating or believing untruths about the Christian faith or about the Lord Jesus. It was simply that they were deluded about themselves. And so it's no wonder that Jesus announces himself as the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Jesus has some uncomfortable truths to tell the church at Laodicea. And he wants them to know right from the beginning, he takes no pleasure in doing so. It is simply the case he wants them to see themselves as he sees them. One of the things I did learn at school was the value of exams. Teachers who didn't like me couldn't do anything about good exam results. But on the other hand, a teacher could be as nice as they liked to me in the term time. They could write lovely reports about me. But if I did badly in an exam, there was no covering it up. Jesus, I think, knows that the church in Laodicea would have failed an exam in being a good and God-honouring church. He doesn't want them to. They are his and he loves them. And so he comes to them as one who not just created truth, but witnesses to it. Not in order to make them feel bad or to look bad or because Jesus is on some kind of an ego trip but because he loves them. So, what is it that Jesus already knows about the church at Laodicea? I wonder if you've had uh, the experience of doing something that you thought was really, really good and you expect praise. Maybe some schoolwork or something, uh, a job you're given to do in your workplace, and uh, you think you've done so well at it, only to discover that actually you've missed the mark and where you are sure of adulation you actually get criticism. I think this might be something of the emotion the Laodicean church would have experienced on receiving this letter that John wrote to them. Although we don't know too much about the details of the church at Laodicea, we do know the one thing that Jesus picks out about them. He says, I know your deeds. I know your work. What we do know about the church at Laodicea is that amongst all the churches of the early church, this was one of the oldest and one of the best established churches. And clearly they held their own works, their own deeds in high regard. James says when he's talking about the importance of not just believing something, but making sure that belief makes a difference in your life, he says... Faith without works is dead. It's no good just believing in something. That belief has got to make a difference to your life. But, you know, here we could turn that upside down, couldn't we, and say that works without faith is equally dead, probably more so. Although details about the church are sparse, my instinct is that if we had been to Laodicea and looked at the Laodicean church, we would not have seen it in the same way that Jesus did. 
I think with our human eyes, we would have seen a successful church. In 21st century terms, this would have been a big church, probably with a diverse congregation, an equally diverse range of uh, or portfolio of ministries. There might have been an impressive number of staff on the payroll. Perhaps a senior pastor was a, a well-known Bible teacher. Perhaps he's written lots of books. The church might be well thought of in the community for its work, its good deeds amongst the poor, sent missionaries to different parts of the world. The members of the church might well give thanks to God for all that God is doing in the church. But the reality is, God isn't doing the work. The congregation is. And as far as they are concerned, their work is not just the proof of their faith, it is the substance of their faith. I am a Christian because I do good works. It's a very convincing argument, isn't it? Especially when the New Testament challenges us to work out our faith with fear and trembling. And yet the subtle difference between works because of faith and faith in our works is not a delusion that was exclusive to the church in Laodicea. And yet Jesus here sees right through the veneer of the church's works, the church's good deeds. And he says, you are neither hot nor cold. You are lukewarm. I am about to spit you out of my mouth. It's pretty tough stuff, isn't it? Well, Jesus here is making one of many uh, geographical comparisons between the church and the city that the church was located in. Just to help us understand what Jesus meant by this comment, uh, if we think about Laodicea, Laodicea was neighboured by two other cities. Up the road was Hierapolis. Hierapolis was a city that was famed for its natural hot springs, and it was well known as a, uh, a healing spa. People went there to bathe in the hot springs to, uh, to be made better. Down the road from Laodicea was Colossae. Colossae was equally famed for its springs, but these were cool, refreshing springs that people enjoyed the sweetness and coolness of the water. Laodicea was in the middle and it had an unusual arrangement when it came to the water. The water came from nearby hills and it was piped not by a traditional Roman aqueduct, but by a system of pressurised siphons and it was stored in cisterns outside the city. The cisterns and a lot of the pipe work is still there and being investigated by archaeologists. And one thing the archaeologists will tell you is this. They had a severe problem with calcinated chalky water and it was well known that the water in Laodicea by the time it reached the city it was both tepid and chalky and had a reputation for making those who drank it sick. Whether or not Jesus said uh, he spat out the metaphorical water because it was tepid and unpalatable or whether he vomited at it out because it made him sick we don't know but the meaning is clear. Much worse than the coolness of outright rejection of the gospel is a lukewarm antipathy towards it. 
to profess to a Christian faith that you are, in fact, untouched by is, as far as Jesus is concerned, a disaster. The commentator Leon Morris says, There is no one further from the truth in Christ than the one who makes an idle profession without real faith. The coolness of the Laodicean church was a denial of all that Christ stands for. And yet, the danger of the Laodiceans' error is one that remains ever-present for the church. The motives behind whatever ministry, whatever work we're involved in for the church can be both subtle and nuanced and shifting. We can start off with the best of intentions, but that can change. Are we doing what we do because we love Jesus, because we serve out of hearts of uh, gratitude and devotion? Or do we serve because we rely on what we do, our good works, our deeds, to gain approval in other people's eyes? Or worse still, to gain approval in God's eyes? Because the reality is, if we try to do that, we failed before we even started. So, what is it that the church believes about itself? We know the church was misled, it was deluded in its opinion of itself, and Jesus wanted to make them aware of this. And to do so, he now highlights four areas where the church thought it was strong, but it was in fact weak. You could say these aren't necessarily uh, areas of spiritual weakness, indeed they could be seen as being metaphorical in some senses, and without rewinding the clock 2,000 years and being present in the church, we can't really tell. What we do know is a few geographical facts about the city which help us to understand some of what Jesus was saying. The first thing we know is that the Laodiceans were both proud and haughty as a people. There had been a series of earthquakes in and around Laodicea, and in 60 AD we know that there was one very, very significant earthquake which had destroyed a lot of Laodicea and many of the cities around it. In response to this, as they were part of the Roman Empire, Rome sent aid in the form of gold to help cities to rebuild after the earthquake. When the Laodiceans were offered financial assistance from Rome, they said, we don't need it. We are rich. We have acquired wealth. We need nothing. And it's true. They really were rich in Laodicea. The city lay in the middle of two well-established trade routes, and it had established uh, several flourishing industries. And having uh, established flourishing industries, it wasn't surprising that they also established what we would call in uh, modern parlance a financial services sector, a banking industry. And they even minted their own Laodicean gold coins. One of those industries was uh, a renowned medical centre, and this medical centre was famous for an ointment that was made to put on the eyes of those who were going blind to help stop the blindness. Another of its famous industries was a type of black clothing that was made from the uh, wool of local, uh, the local sheep. 
In contrast, Jesus offers to clothe them in white clothing. All of this helps us to understand some of the advice that Jesus gives to the church. He says, you do not realise that you are wretched, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. All of which is interesting, of course, but what are we to make of that? Was Jesus speaking literal truth or was he speaking metaphorically? Of course, one of the keys to understand understanding the book of Revelation is to understand when things are literal and when they're metaphorical. I don't think we need to get too bogged down in that here, but suffice to say, I don't think Jesus is saying to the church they were literally blind and naked and poor. But the reality I think that Jesus is trying to get at is this. They had become spiritually depleted by relying on the world around them for spiritual security. I think the sad reality is this, that as the church interacted with the the rest of the city, they too became wealthy and successful. And let me say here and now, there is nothing wrong with either of those things. But the big mistake is to think that your wealth, your success, means that you don't need Jesus where you once did. Put very simply, the church had decided that they were now self-sufficient and they could do without God. And that is the crux of the Laodiceans' problem in a nutshell. They really were deluded. They didn't need Jesus because they'd become so rich and successful. They now placed their faith and trust in themselves and not in the Lord Jesus and the good news of the gospel. You know, it's true that all sorts of rich and successful people do all sorts of amazing things for God in and through the church. But you know, the fact that they're rich and successful is irrelevant. What God is interested in is where their trust lies, where our trust lies. Do you trust in yourselves? Do you trust in what you've achieved? Do you trust in your own success? Or do you lean wholeheartedly on God and the Lord Jesus and his free offer of salvation. You know, there's an old hymn which has actually been uh, um, reintroduced recently as a modern worship song, and it says this, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly trust on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Well, we thought about uh, the Jesus and as how he presents himself to the church, the fact that he is uh, the, the amen, the faithful and true witness. We thought about what Jesus knew about the church And, on the other hand, what the church thought about itself. And we now come to ask ourselves the question, well, what does Jesus advise the church to do? Because the story doesn't end here. The amazing thing with God, the wonderful thing with God, is that however badly we get things wrong, 
he always gives us a second chance. And God doesn't do this in a begrudging fashion. He doesn't do it in an exacting fashion. He does it lavishly. He does it because he loves us and he wants us to come back to him, to admit our mistakes and to move forward, to draw a line under what's gone on before and move forward. And see, Jesus now uh, says to the church, so be earnest and repent. Be earnest and repent. Repent is that little word that's often used in the Bible. It simply means to turn around, to start moving in a different direction, perhaps to do a U-turn. Be earnest and repent. And Jesus now paints another picture of the church, not this time as a wretched, poor, blind and naked, but this time as a door. Anyone who's familiar with the works of the uh, famous pre-Raphaelite painter William Holman Hunt will now immediately bring to mind his famous painting, The Light of the World, which was, of course, inspired by these verses. Um, if you've never seen the painting before, then you can, uh, you'll find uh, any number of images of it if you Google it, or you can go to St. Paul's Cathedral and see it in the flesh when we're allowed to do such things. The painting is used almost exclusively as an evangelistic tool, and it seems that that is what the painter, William Holman Hunt, intended. The painting portrays Jesus knocking on the door of the heart of the unbeliever, and the painting of the door has several significant things about it. The door has no handle. That means the door can only be opened from the inside. That would have, uh, for the Laodiceans, stood in stark contrast to the way that the Roman soldiers would have treated their front doors. Laodicea was a garrison town, and it wasn't just expected, but it was anticipated that Roman soldiers would simply walk into people's homes and demand food and hospitality. But this door has no handle. It can only be opened by the person on the inside of the building. There's ivy and other growth on the outside of the door, showing that the door has gone into uh, not being used. It's fallen into disuse. There's many other uh, details, small details, that the budding evangelist can get his teeth into to help him preach the gospel. The hand knocking on the door and holding the lamp are hands that are pierced by nails. The feet of Jesus are pointing away from the door as if he's about to give one last knock and to walk off. As noble as all of this is and as noble as Holman Hunt's intentions were, it is to miss the point of what Jesus was saying here. Because Jesus here is not talking to the unbeliever. These are words to an established church. This is a picture that should never have had to have been painted. The reality is that this is Jesus, the one who we read in the book of Revelation, holds the seven stars of the churches in his hand. The one who walks among the seven lampstands, which are the seven churches. And he now stands at the door of the church and knocks on the door, asking to come in. He will not force his way in, but patiently waits to be invited. Why? Because the reality is 
The, the church that has decided it does not need to see Jesus and Jesus alone as its solid rock has in fact completely shut Jesus out and will rapidly find itself on sinking sand. What a terrible reflection of what was supposed to be a successful church. But with God, there is always hope. What is it that Jesus says next? Well, Jesus gives the church a second chance. The picture that Jesus paints of the church is only partly negative. The reality is that Jesus offers through the picture an invitation and like any invitations, of course, it takes two to be successful. There has to be an inviter and an invitee. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. And as he does so, he offers this invitation. If you will open the door, I will come in and eat with you. But of course, it does rely, doesn't it, on the invitee receiving the invitation and opening the door. The invitee here, of course, was the very successful Laodicean church. And I think in order to receive the invitation successfully, they had to do three things. First of all, they had to be humble. They had to admit that they were not quite all they thought they were. Secondly, they had to recognise that it's only Jesus that holds the answer to their shortcomings. And thirdly, of course, they had to apply those first two steps and then actually open the door and let Jesus in. Now, I suspect that a lot of churches could manage the first two. They'll admit that they're not quite all they're cracked up to be. And they will admit that Jesus is, uh, is the answer to their shortcomings. But to many churches, to submit to Jesus to allow him to take control of the agenda, to become the centre, to become the focus for everything they do, I suspect is a step too far, especially those that feel proud and self-sufficient. Nevertheless, the offer stands of eating with Jesus. And this is a beautiful biblical picture of love, and acceptance. The Bible, especially the Gospels, is full of the examples of eating with people. Think of the Last Supper, that thing that we nowadays celebrate in what we call communion. Jesus broke bread with his disciples. It's called communion because it's about communing with people. It's about forming relationships. Many times we read in the Gospels that Jesus was criticised for consorting with people who were not generally accepted by society. And more often than not, the, 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 the substance of, uh, of the accusation came down to the fact that he eats with tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners, the diseased, lepers, so on and so forth. And that was Jesus' way of accepting these people. So for Jesus to offer to come in and eat with the Laodiceans was to reassure them that whatever they had got wrong, he had not rejected them. But he loved them and he wanted to be in the centre of all that they were doing. If only they would admit their failings and readmit him, open the door, the relationship could be fully restored.
And to those who would open the door, more than just loving acceptance and a meal is promised. Because Jesus here makes a further promise to the church. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. One of the things we've seen over the last few weeks as we've looked at the six uh, previous letters in this section in Revelation is that they follow a general pattern. Jesus would introduce himself using some description or some aspect of his character. There would then be an encouragement, something the church was doing right. Uh, there was then a challenge, something the church wasn't getting right and needed to work on. And usually the key to facing the challenge could be found in the characteristic that Jesus presented the church with at the beginning of the letter. And usually the challenge arose from some aspect of the church seeking to both serve God and as it did so, engage with the community around it. And there then follows at the end of the letter some sort of promise to the church that relates to the challenge Jesus gives them. If you overcome this challenge, then this will happen. Uh, a sort of healthy combination, if you like, of carrot and stick. The last letter is different in a couple of aspects. The way that Jesus introduces himself at the beginning of the letter is not one that's found in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. And in fact, Jesus here has nothing good to commend about the Laodiceans. It would be nice to say he saved the best till last, but unfortunately, he actually saved the worst till last. But, you know, the final promise here does follow the pattern. There is a promise to the church that wholeheartedly relates to the challenge that it faced. The issue that the church at Laodicea faced was one of trying to serve two masters. They wanted to be seen to serve God, and yet the reality was they served them, that uh, they compromised themselves by in fact serving the world. They weren't alone in facing this dilemma. The early church, and you could say the church for 2,000 years since, has found itself uh, having to face the problem of interacting with the world around it in a way that is not compromising to its belief and is still honouring to God. For the early church, particularly the church at Laodicea, uh, this came in the form of emperor worship. They had to worship the emperor, the uh, emperor of the Roman Empire, as God. Pagan worship, the issue of meeting, eat, eating meat from idols, that's something you can read about in the book of Corinthians, or from something called trade guilds. We know the church at Laodicea certainly faced a problem with emperor worship. Indeed, Laodicea was one of the first cities to promote emperor worship uh, amongst, ahead of other cities in the Roman Empire. It also faced this problem of trade guilds. These were much like trade guilds, a few of which are still in existence today, um, but certainly up uh, until a few years ago, were prevalent in different trades. In order to practice a trade, in order to join a profession, you had to join the guild, the worshipful company of whatever it was, and you go along with everything that that guild does and says. In Roman times, that meant 
worshipping at the guild temple. It meant praying to whichever god your guild deified. So you can see the problem the church faced, can't you? You become a Christian. You commit everything to Christ. But to do so and to take that seriously means also cutting your ties with your trade guild. And that means perhaps losing your profession and losing your income and losing your standing in society. And whether you make a lot of money or a little bit of money, that's bad news. And so the obvious solution, if you like, the obvious temptation is to try and negotiate some sort of a deal with your conscience. Well, you might say to yourself, God doesn't want my family income to suffer. God doesn't want my children to suffer. God wants me to still be able to put a meal on the table at the end of the day, to put a roof over my family's head. How can I be a good influence in the world with those I work alongside? if I shun my colleagues in the guild? Does it really matter if I go to this feast or ceremony to worship this pagan god? After all, if I don't mean what I'm saying, when I say all that stuff, am I really worshipping this or that god? And you can see, can't you, how the rot sets in. Either you rely totally on God, Or you rely totally on the world. You cannot serve two masters. In the end, Jesus says in the Gospels, you will end up being enslaved by one of those masters. And that is what happened in Laodicea. But Jesus gives the church a way out. Allow him back into the church, allow him back into the driving seat, and he would fully restore the relationship. The reality is when we fully enter into a relationship with Jesus, when we fully trust Jesus, we enter into his life as he enters into our life. That means we enter into his sufferings. Yes, It means being spurned by the world. It means by being rejected sometimes by those around us. It means being persecuted by those around us. But you know, it also means we enter into the victory of Jesus. Jesus came and he walked the earth and he was shunned by most. The prophet Isaiah said centuries before Jesus came that he would be a man of sorrows, rejected by the world and acquainted with grief. And you know that rejection by the world, rejection by mankind, met its climax on the cross as he hung dying on a Roman cross of execution. Rejected by the world, rejected by his friends, rejected by his families, abandoned and cut off from God. And yet it was in that moment when Jesus' rejection and abandonment by everyone was total that Jesus entered into victory over sin and death. If the church at Laodicea decided to fully trust Jesus, And to live their lives through his grace and power, they would be shunned and rejected by many around them. But alongside entering into the suffering of Christ, 
they would have an opportunity to enter into the victory that he won at Calvary. The story of the Laodicean church is a stark reminder that at the end of the day, we live for an audience of one. We may worry about what others around us think of us and how they'll treat us, but ultimately we should only worry about what God thinks of us. And rest assured that he will carry us through our darkest days and our hardest times. Now sometimes as day by day life decisions come to us, it's easy to take the easy options in life, isn't it? Especially when, as, as is most often the case, decisions aren't black and white, but they're shades of grey. But we have a God who is loving and faithful and true, the great Amen, the ruler of the world. Hundreds of years before Jesus wrote to the church at Laodicea, a man called Job faced the same dilemma. His friends, what we nowadays call his so-called Job comforters, Job's comforters, kept on at him to compromise his beliefs, to follow the thinking of the world, to reject what God had promised him and not in God. But you know, in the darkest days of Job's suffering and heartache, he confidently declared, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my flesh has been destroyed, yet in my flesh shall I see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. How my heart yearns within me. What a difference in Job's attitude to that of the lukewarm coolness of the Laodiceans. How my heart yearns within me. And Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, you are neither hot nor cold, I spit you out of my mouth. It seems to me that as we look at this letter to Laodicea, we face one final challenge, one question that together we must answer as a church. Will we be lukewarm to our response? Will we trust in Jesus or trust in ourselves when pressures come in from the world? When we have to make difficult decisions and we're tempted to compromise, will we be lukewarm in our response to what Jesus has done for us? Or will we say with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives, how my heart yearns within me. What will it be? Will it be like the Laodiceans, compromise with the world? Or will it be like Job, confidence in Christ? The challenge comes to each and every one of us. God bless you all.